I'm going to be real with you guys for a second. That was hard to watch. Oh, brilliant. Brilliant episode. One of Trek's best. Um, the only thing that really hurts it is the fact that it'll never matter again. <laughs> Continuity, right? I mean, what Picard goes through... Now, let's just say I know people in real life who have been through about as bad, or not quite as bad, who are still suffering from the PTSD from that to this very day. Uh, it's okay. Picard just brushes it off. Made of steel. Did you know Jerry Taylor did a page one rewrite of this? And in hindsight, it shows. I've always said it's really hard to nail down what Jerry Taylor is good at. And the best way I've ever come up with explaining it is she's good at the non-sci-fi stuff. So when you have an episode that's just all about people, she tends to be in her element. And I think this is a good example of that. It's probably worth noting that Mr. Frank, I'm not going to butcher his last name, did most of the real legwork in writing this episode. You know him, the one who did Man of the People at the last second, along with like five other people. Yeah. <clears throat> Mr. Frank, again, I'm not going to try his last name, also spent quite some time uh, dealing with, or I should say communicating with Amnesty International, reaching out to them and getting information on the specifics of torture and the psychology of torturing and torturers. Stewart, Patrick Stewart, also personally reached out to Amity, uh, Amity International and got a lot of information on the specifics of that because he wanted his own portrayal to be, well, accurate. This is Patrick Stewart we're talking about. Of course he threw himself into the role, and by God, he did. That's actually probably the only complaint I've ever heard about this episode, really, is that there probably should have been a graphic violence warning right at the beginning. Now, don't mistake me, especially by today's standards. This episode is positively tame. But do remember, not only did this episode come out in the 90s, early 90s, but it also was a show that children regularly watched. And there were quite a few people who were just shocked and surprised at the content that was all of a sudden in their show. So, yeah, I, I do actually agree. A little bit of a, hey, this is a little darker than usual kind of a warning probably would, would not have gone amiss at the beginning. But I wouldn't have changed it. I have divided my notes into two because there's really two plots here. Hey, an A plot and a B plot. And I really want to talk about the, I guess, the B plot first. Before I actually move forward, though, there's this bit I never actually addressed back in episode one, and I want to mention it here. They have a whole ceremony for Captain Jellicoe taking over the Enterprise, and everyone basically acts like it's an official command transfer. And I never addressed the why of that. Now, there's, it's actually funny, because there's two reasons for it. The out-of-character reason was so that all the, the viewers, along with the characters, like, oh my god, is Jellicoe really replacing Picard? You may not be aware of this, but at the time... Uh, talks were pretty much at their highest that Stuart was going to go ahead and leave the show. Yes, again, this is now the second time that those talks have been in. Now, by all information we have, including interviews from Stuart at the time, none of that was even in his mind at this point. He had actually become... Not, he had started to enjoy his role as Picard, and they had started doing more for him, and he had more to do, and blah, blah, blah. So he was happier with the role now. So he wasn't actually thinking about leaving. But by God, those rumors were swirling. Also, just a little aside from the whole production side of things, apparently one of the reasons they announced Generations so early 
was specifically because they wanted that to be a hook for Patrick Stewart. You, you will be able to star in a major motion picture instead of just in the show as the same character. Just fun little thoughts there. Again, I'm not sure how necessary that was or how much it changed his mind. I mean, I can't read the man's mind from the past. I'm not Xavier or anything. But in hindsight, though, that's the out-of-character reason. But the in-character reason makes perfect sense. Deniability. Remember, they didn't want to acknowledge that Picard was being sent off on this mission, which once again makes the whole Picard and Crusher being on that mission thing just kind of really stupid, doesn't it? Especially since, I, I didn't even realize this, I thought Data was going to say he's the only captain. No, he's actually one of three, so they got two other people they can bring in on this. So why'd they send Picard? Anywho, <clears throat> let's cover the Jellicoe side first. So, he says in his log, he believes that this is an unavoidable military confrontation, and funnily enough, he was right. It's just, the term military confrontation actually covers quite a gamut of different interactions. Obviously, we are meant to think that this is going to be a state of war, and he himself is trying to avoid that, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So, there's this bit where he says, what evidence do you have that we have sent a mission to you? And they said, we have Picard, and that's all the evidence we need. Now... That's actually kind of important. He Im implies lies that <laughs> he imply lies. I never actually that Picard and their squad have killed fifty-five people. Oh my God, mass murdering terrorists, right? Sure. I mean, is anybody actually believing that? Well, it doesn't matter because they have Picard, which means there was a mission. Which means the Cardassians have a casus belli. A hostile attack on their territory by an enemy force, regardless of intent, is still a hostile act. The only one that could be even conceivably brushed away is if it was a scouting mission, and it clearly was not. So there's no rescue planned. Okay, that makes sense. No, it really does. In a Star Trek show, it doesn't make sense, because in Star Trek, it's like, oh my god, they're being held in this mega-secure facility, we've got to techno-babble our way through. But in a slightly more, well, let's call it what it is, a believable timeline, there's no rescue being planned. The more likely scenario to actually rescue him is to succeed in a military conflict and negotiate through diplomacy with a stronger hand for his release. Prisoners of war being exchanged is an extremely common thing in real life and has been for a long time, going back into the centuries range. And probably longer? I only know of it till like the 1400s. <clears throat> Now there's this bit, there's this really good bit, where Gull Evil, I can't remember his name, please forgive me, is talking about how, ha we have the, the shot of Picard and we can confirm it, blah, blah, blah. I want you to pay attention to that scene again, and I want you to watch Ronnie Cox's face. He does a lot of really nuanced portrayal with his character, and you can see how torn he is. I, I've, I know I've kind of already defended Jellico in the last episode, but in this one, it becomes very clear that this is a man who is trying to do his damn job and is terrified of the consequences of failure. And so he is pretty much on the edge constantly. And all of that makes sense because he is terrified, because he understands the reality of war, probably fought in the last Cardassian War ten years ago. <sighs> I say 10 years ago, as I've said before, the Cardassian conflicts is such a vague thing in Star Trek history, we still don't know what it is. Anyways. And is probably it is, is fully cognizant of how much of this situation is sitting on his shoulders specifically. He also... This is funny. 
So Riker says the convention, the, the such and such whatcha fig ruling treaty would protect Picard, and the, the Cardassian says, well, that will only protect him if he is he was here on Federation orders, on, under under that's only for an act of war, and and are you prepared to admit that he was here under orders? No. Well then, I'm afraid he's going to be treated as a terrorist. Do you, now, do you kind of get how this is actually surprisingly political? In a wonderful way, and kind of indicative of the direction DS9 would be going, no less, in several ways. Because what we have here is the Cardassians have the perfect casus belli, twice, actually, to declare war on the Federation as a defensive war, one that is far less likely to draw in additional allies, and is far more likely to push support for war down amongst the Federation. In fact, what they're probably pushing for here is a quick conflict where they will quickly grab a few territories and then, as a peacemaking measure, offer peace now that basically peacing out. You know, everyone keeps what they have, right? Just that kind of a thing. We took these three systems. We're good. Let's just call this off. Now, in the, under these circumstances, technically it would be the Cardassians pushing the war. Or I should say more accurately, technically it would actually be the Federation pushing the war because the Federation initiated the first hostile action. But in reality land, it would be the Cardassians doing the attacking. That's why the Cardassians are so careful about their maneuvering here. See, if they admit he was there, then th that, and that would protect Picard. Picard's life would be salvaged. However, as a consequence, that would be openly admitting in a public and diplomatic state that the Federation committed the hostile act, allowing for the act of war. Instead, they'd deny it, which the Cardassians were probably expecting. So instead, they offer something else. We'll just give him back, and you will leave the system, basically abandoning it to the Cardassians, who can then move in and take it by force, if not on paper. And we'll just forget this whole thing and move the incident away. Basically wiping the slate clean. A straight trade. Now, that is also a terrible deal, and one that Jellicoe should not take. And I just, I love pointing out the, the complexities of this. The only catch is Riker doesn't get into that. Now, you could say that Riker doesn't get any of that because he's more concerned about Picard, or because Riker is not that large-scale politically minded. But Jellicoe has to flat out tell Riker the truncated version of what I just told you. So then Riker's relieved. And then Jellicoe appoints Data his second-in-command. You know, one of the things I find interesting, in both Episode 1 and 2, Jellicoe gravitates towards Data a lot, and I can see why. And this is ultimately one of those things that's just kind of going to be up to your opinion. Because ultimately, that's what Jellicoe wants. A crew of androids who do what he wants them to do. He wants to play StarCraft. He doesn't want to lead people. I think, ultimately... This is why I like this episode on the Jellicoe side. Because he's not a villain. I, don't, I, I firmly don't agree that he is a villainous character. And Ronnie Cox didn't think that either, for that matter. But he is one side of an argument that is not necessarily correct. Forgive me for skipping ahead here, but there's this little bit where he's talking to Riker. And, right, <laughs> you know what? He starts off as affable, honest, talking about music. Riker just shuts him down. He's like, okay. And so he admits what he thinks of Riker. And if you put yourself in Jellicoe's shoes, he's right. Then Riker admits what he thinks of Jellicoe. And if you put yourself in Riker's shoes, he's right. What we are seeing is two military officers who command in very different ways. 
And what I love is that Star Trek actually, Star Trek often reaches for the neither side is right idea, but it doesn't always succeed at it. Here I think they do. Riker's side is more of the fatherly light touch thing, um, encouraging co coordination, cooperation, and teamwork amongst people in order to engender a, a family kind of a society. Uh, making sure that it is an open environment, which is engendering trust. And in fact, I'm going to use his own words here. An atmosphere of trust and inspiration. Jellicoe's style of command is that he is the one ultimately on point. He, specifically. And that he gives orders that he needs to be followed to the best of their ability without him having to worry about the nitty-gritty details or specifics. I have two perfect examples of that. First, in the meeting room uh, earlier when they decide to go to the, the thing, it's not a meeting. It's a, it's a briefing. When Picard calls a meeting, he calls that because he wants everyone's input. When Jellicoe calls a meeting, he calls a meeting because he is telling you all your jobs. Do you, do you see the difference in command style there? Furthermore, later there's this wonderful bit. It's a very subtle touch. But it works wonderfully to, to showcase the character. He says, Data, I want to be at this location within this time. That's the order he gives. This is the result I want. I don't know how to get to this point. That's why I'm telling you to do it. Data then says, set this course at this speed. Done. So you can see the different approaches there. And I admit, I would probably be more on the lines of the fatherly approach. That's how I have led in the past, and that's how I prefer to be led. But I'm not saying that Jellicoe's approach is wrong, just different. As ever, love to hear your guys' thoughts on this. Anyways, a couple of the notes about Jellicoe before we move on to the meat of the episode. Uh, right after the confrontation with Riker, where he relieves Riker of duty, we see him completely on the ball in resolving the situation. Now, that was an important move by the creators, because they basically just put him as an antagonist to Riker, so they then have to show that he is not an antagonist to the crew. He is, in fact, an ally of the crew, and they needed to show that immediately so they don't lose the audience or risk alienating more people. Remember, Jellicoe is quite a divisive figure. Um... And, of course, Jellicoe is really big on results, and he needs the best pilot he's got in order to do this very dangerous shuttle mission. And Riker is the best pilot on the Enterprise-D. So Jellicoe, without hesitation, I might add, goes to Riker. And when Riker says, frankly, rather smugly, says, ask, Jellicoe, without hesitation, asks. It's unpleasant, and he doesn't want to do it, but he does it, because he wants the result. And that is Jellicoe's approach right there. So, then, probably my favorite bit on that side of things, he attaches all these minds to the ships, and by all accounts, everything up until this point has led you to believe that Jellicoe is going to just destroy the Cardassian ships and start a war. Now, I point that out because, and I keep pointing this out, there's different kinds of tension you can create, right? Whether the audience knows, the character knows, or some combination thereof. In this case, this was character knows, audience does not know, which is actually a pretty rare one to pull off correctly. Here, Jellicoe knew he wasn't going to start a war here. This is a negotiation tactic. But because of the unique circumstance that Jellicoe does not let people in on his thoughts, that he doesn't have meetings to discuss things, that he doesn't explain people the large view or what he's trying to do, he just gives them their specific jobs, 
nobody knew that he wasn't trying to start a war, including us, because we never saw him say anything about that. So the bait-and-switch actually works quite well, both in character and out. And, of course, the negotiation tactic works brilliantly, because, of course, it does. So, now let's talk about the torture episode. Let's just be blunt about it. Um, sorry. <clears throat> I noticed in this episode, uh, it was a little more obvious that Warner was reading from a cue card. He would do this thing where he would kind of dart back and forth periodically, like every line or so. And, and, and I guess they did what they could. In, in fairness, if I didn't know about it, I probably wouldn't notice it. I certainly didn't notice it back in the day, although, of course, I was watching on a tiny TV screen back in the day, but you get the point. Anyways, <clears throat> so, they inject him with a serum to get the truth out of him. And he doesn't know. We need the information from Venus Corvo. I don't know. Okay, inject more serum. Let's start again. Now that's important, because it's really the crux of the episode, in a really weird and horrible way. See, all of this, all of this was a trap by the Cardassians to get Picard in here to get their defense data, so they would have basically a leg up on the initial conflict that I described earlier that they're trying to provoke. The defensive war of conquest, as weird as that sounds. Anybody who's played uh, any Paradox games knows exactly what I'm talking about. So... I just want to point out that that was actually in the teaser. In the cold open, we established that he does not have the information they want. So why do they keep torturing him? Notice that they use the most direct and, uh, let's call it the most accurate, way of getting results from him first. Just drugging him up, and that makes perfect sense. As Picard later says, as real life has shown many times, torture does not get results, at least not information results. Picard himself in this episode says, I would have told him anything. So, Madrid comes in, and can I just gush for a moment? This One of the things I mentioned was the budget thing. This episode in particular was extremely cheap even though it had three major guest stars who appeared regularly and had regular speaking lines because of the whole two-part thing, but also because they used existing sets and then one room and two actors acting off of each other. Oh, sure, there's other characters. His daughter comes in. There's the other Cardassian guards. But basically, this is the Gull Madrid and Picard show. And you have just put... In my opinion, at least at this point in time, back in 92 or 93, whatever it is, you've just put two of the best actors in a room together to act off of each other. Yeah, no, of course it turned out amazing. Now, the first thing uh, Madrid does, I'm going to try really hard not to call him Warner, first thing Madrid does is he establishes a rapport. Uh, the idea of archaeology. Have you ever seen the archaeological digs of Cardassia, the, you know, the ruins? They've been plundered, of course. So he does two things very carefully right at the beginning. First, he establishes a rapport, and then he establishes a further connection by hinting in a passive sort of um, implied manner that he finds it regretful that war and conquest have managed to ruin the archaeological side of things, things that he knows will get Picard's attention, connecting with the man on a personal level. Then he immediately switches over to the point where he's going to go ahead and bring out this knife. Notice he never uses the knife to cut Picard. Picard gets a few cuts, but that's mostly just as a consequence of, of just interaction. 
because implied violence is almost always more effective than violence. Then they do probably the worst thing to him, at least from our perspective. We have to see naked Patrick Stewart. It's horrible. No, no, I'm sorry. I have to joke about it. This episode brought me to tears. Today, now, rewatching this, still hit me that hard. They strap him up. They, they put him in the cuffs. They put him in the cuffs, and they hold him up. To the, I, I can't do it because I'm wearing the suit. You know, you can't raise your arms. But uh, they, they just dangle him there and strip him of all his clothing to uh, dehumanize him, to prevent him from having uh, a sense of self. And he flat out tells, tells him, I'm just going to start calling you human from now on. You no longer have an identity. Good night, and then they leave. Fun fact, Patrick Stewart actually did get naked for that because he wanted it to be as, as brutal and horrible as it could be. It was a closed set. They had like three people on the set for that, counting Stewart himself. I guess that would be four people, excuse me. And just... Then they leave him there. One of the things I find interesting is real-life people don't really understand how bad torture can be. And that's a good thing. Nobody should understand how bad torture could be. But what I mean by that, though, is that most of the time you think torture, you think Braveheart, right? Someone's carving up your belly with a knife. I mean, yes, that's torture. But there's so many other horrible, terrible, disgusting, awful things that can and has been done in history to, human, to, to fellow human beings to hurt them. I want you to imagine for a moment that you are being dangled from your wrists. Now, I don't know how much you weigh, and I don't care, <laughs> but however much you weigh, all of those pounds, all those 90 to 375 and 0.2 pounds... <laughs> I'm just messing. All that weight is being pushed right here and right here. So that's point number one of this. That is going to hurt like hell. It's going to dig into your skin. It's literally going to cut. There's nothing sharp about those, those metal bangles. It doesn't matter. They don't need to be sharp. Pure pressure and time will split and cut into your skin. Now, as you're left dangling there, you're left dangling there for a huge period of time. So the blood just slowly starts to drain out of your arms until it gets to the point where they get to that very horrible, not quite capable of feeling sense. So you lose functional control over them. At some point, the combination of pain and fatigue will make you pass out. You will not fall asleep. You will pass out from sheer exhaustion. And when you are awoken, you will barely be cognizant and functional. Credit to Stuart, when he is finally released from that, he can barely move his arms, and they're still stuck like this. Which is exactly... Which is exactly what would happen. So. Um, comes in. They, 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 he's got the bruises on his wrist. If, if, I know this is going to sound strange. The bruises on his wrist are a nice touch, but they're actually much less bad than they should be. That's okay, though. The only way they can make that worse is to probably actually splinter splinter Patrick Stewart's uh, wrists, and that's incredibly unpleasant, so I wouldn't recommend that. So then they turn on the lights. How many lights are there? Now, everyone in the world has brought up the obvious 1984 parallel, and I'm pretty sure at least part of that was deliberate. Nobody's ever confirmed that. Frank, who originally wrote this, has never actually confirmed whether or not there was any deliberate intent to do that. I know that a lot of the set designers were deliberately trying to avoid connections to various dystopias that are available at the time, but 
Not sure if the original writing was. Regardless, this is the most fundamental and simplest form of control. And that's why it was so effective in that book. You see, the power therein, or the, the attempted at power, is not that 2 plus 2 equals 5, so to speak. It's that I will tell you something, and because the party tells you something, it is taken as true, regardless of all other circumstances, including what your own eyes are telling you. Now, if you're paying attention, you're thinking, well, that's not trying to get information. That's just trying to establish control. Exactly. The really horrible element of this episode is that Golmadred tortures Picard for no good reason. He has already failed to procure the information they wanted. The operation and all that effort was wasted. Now, the higher-ups in military supreme command, or whatever it's called, I forget what they call it, they actually had a term. They used it in DS9. I can't think of it right now. The military commanders are trying to, to make something out of this. And I already talked about that on the Jellico side of things. But for Madrid, well, he's just left with a guy. You remember what Jellico said about Cardassians? Pack animals, establishing dominance, seeking, you know, others around them. I'll get back to that point. So, how many lights are there? And he's so civil. He even apologizes. I'm sorry, this will be quite unpleasant. But it'll be so much clearer if I just explain to you through action how I'm torturing you. There's something really insidious about the way that someone who is torturing you will try to portray themselves as if they're on your side. A very classic intimidation and interrogation technique that is used in real life by the so-called good guys. And I only make that point. I'm not trying to make a political statement. I'm just saying, the stuff they do in this episode, with the exception of some of these specific elements, like the, the, uh, whatever the thing is they put in his, his neural system, for example, is stuff that civilized nations do in a modern society which tries to avoid things like the Iron Maiden, for example. So then, his daughter is there. And he admits, he actually, in his attempt to continue to open up to sentiment with Picard, he admits, I think, honestly, how amazing it was the power she has over me and how, how, much, how easily and effortlessly she wormed her way into my defenses. Which is true, the kids tend to do that. But in so doing, he admits the first chink in his defenses. Because Picard starts to speechify at him, basically. And so Picard hits him right in the sentiment. And he provokes him. And provokes him until Golmadred physically strikes him, completely losing control of the situation. Remember, Madred doesn't need to hurt him physically. In fact, if he does so, he's basically failed. He can use other forms of torture or asserting of dominance, including the, the methods he has, like fatigue and starvation, as well as dehydration. But if he has to resort to physically hitting him, he is doing so out of his own out angry outburst. And in so doing, he has revealed his weakness. He starts to recover after that. He leaves, actually. Takes a moment, so to speak. Comes back, offers the egg with the living whatever it was in it. I forget the name. And he says, hey, 
He doesn't actually say anything, he just offers it and watches. Picard, of course, eats the thing whole. Yeah, I've been there. And then he's very pleased by this, and after this show, decides to go ahead and offer him, you know, real food and real drink. Here you go, a reward. And then he tells a story. Now what's funny is this is, again, him attempting to reestablish the rapport, to come across as the positive side of things. I have suffered, too. I have been tortured, too. I have gone through hell, just like you have, in a very similar manner. And he tells this whole story. And then, of course, he adds, again, this is probably a mistake by Madrid's part, but then a bigger boy came along and took it, of course. He had to break my arm to do it. And then Picard... <laughs> must be so rewarding to repay all those years of misery. And Madrid doesn't even fully understand, and it is Picard who has to point out that Picard gets it. That the only reason he is being tortured and tormented is to satisfy the need for dominance and revenge of one petty gull. He hits Madred so hard, Madred has to divest himself of all of his attempts at psychological manipulation and revert right back to straight torture. And he just continues to do it over and over. Where's the, what's the information on the system? How many lights are there? And Picard won't yield. You are a six-year-old helpless boy. You cannot hurt me. I admit I broke down in that scene. It was very, ooh. Just remembering it. It was very hard to watch. You can tell Stuart did his research on what someone acts like when they're being tortured past the capacity to endure it. So. Um, he offers him the fake freedom. This actually happens earlier. I'm sorry. I screwed this up. He offers him the fake freedom to establish control. You can go. You've won. I'll get what I need from the woman. Worf's dead, of course. Now, all of this is, of course, a complete lie. And funnily enough, I'm actually curious what would have happened if Picard had taken him up on that. He wouldn't, naturally, because this was just a part of showing him a fake choice, which leads to the final fake choice. Note that at this point, this is after the Jellicoe stuff has resolved. The Cardassians have capitulated. They have lost at the negotiation table. And Picard is to be set free as uh, a stipulation rather than as a bargaining chip. So he comes in and he gives him the final choice. Now what's interesting about this choice is from, if completely detached from reality, this choice is obvious. Do you want to be tortured for the rest of your life? Or do you want to be kept in relative, he basically implies he's going to be a prisoner, but he's taken care of. You know, you can have food and drink and clothing, and we can study some archaeological ruins together and we can talk. It'll be fascinating. Which do you take? Well, obviously you take the second one, right? But the problem is that only makes sense if you assume that both choices are absolute, as in they are the only two choices, and that they are valid, as in they are legitimate. Keeping in mind, he has been doing nothing but trying to break Picard this entire time. Even now, he is trying in one last desperate attempt to break him. He himself says we had unfinished business. For no other reason than to simply do it. That petty need to establish his dominance over a broken man. Now, he also... He fails, obviously. But at the same time, and this is an interesting point, he actually succeeds completely. 
this is probably one of the better elements the episode has. As what we see is Picard's defiance. There are four lights. But while that is a powerful scene, and meme-worthy, obviously, that scene isn't actually Picard winning. That scene is Jellica winning. Picard is... Oh, the only reason Picard does this, the only reason Picard manages to maintain his defiance is he is informed, in no uncertain terms, that everything he was just told is a lie and he's about to be freed to go. That's the only reason. As he himself admits to, to Troy later, not only was he willing to say anything, but he actually believed he could see five lights in those moments. Because... One of the points that was trying to be made by the writers and director and Stewart himself is that torture breaks all of us. Oh, sure, in fiction, we bravely stand up for ourselves as we're being tormented or tortured, but in reality, no, no. Torture breaks people. The only... The only question is how... Now, forgive me for getting a little emotional here. Because um, I was going to end on a far more neutral point. I'm sorry for, sorry for losing myself here. Uh, I, I wish this mattered in the future. This will never be referenced again. Um, the only way this episode actually really matters, continuity-wise after this, is because... Thanks to the screw-ups, and I, I told you I'd talk about this. Thanks to the screw-ups back in, uh, with the timing of Chain of Command and the fact it was stretched out in two episodes, the very next episode that came out after this was Emissary. As a consequence, despite those screw-ups in Part 1, with the slightly retconned version, it now becomes clear that the major reason the Bajorans bailed was because of this episode and the victory that Jellicoe just offered to the Federation in, this, in these negotiations and in the ongoing, uh, let's call it, stance between the, the Bajorans and the Cardassians. Now, I don't say that to dismiss what the Bajorans were doing. Obviously, the Bajorans had been doing a great deal to make the occupation as painful and as costly as possible. But my point is, this was the final bit of hay on a large barrel of hay on the back of the Cardassian Union. That these events were finally the, okay, we're done, we're done moment for the Cardassian Union, and they pulled their forces back, and they pulled the units back, and with this increased diplomatic and political, as well as military pressure from this episode, they, they simply gave up on the Bajoran situation, and the Bajorans pushed them out. And I bring that up because that's the only consequence this episode has, and even that is an unspoken consequence. And I'm curious if, I'm curious what you guys think of it. Uh, how much validity you think there is validity you think there is to that or not? Either way, having endured that, I hope you guys enjoyed my thoughts. I'll see you guys next time. <laughs>